Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tony Tacconi, who is the artistic director of Berkeley Rep, has been artistic director since 1996, has been at Berkeley Rep an additional 10 years, and before that you were at the Eureka, correct? Oscar Eustace and uh, a bunch of other wonderful people, Lori Holt, Abigail Van Allen, Richard Side, Susan Marston, Sigurd Worshman. And now Oscar is at the public, which means you have a special relationship with the public, I would guess. Yeah, we do. It's a very, very close relationship. It's been fortuitous because, you know, we've developed a working relationship that's really quite wonderful. I mean, we get to develop work out here that we can frequently bring there. I mean, this year, Head of Passes, Terrell McCraney's play, played at the public. Party People, which was here, is going to play there. John Leguizamo's show, which was going there. I mean, so there's been a, a really happy and easy partnership there about developing work. And also, we've been able to have a very sustained, deep dialogue about developing plays and working with writers and what they each particularly need and, and how we can each serve institutionally and individually to further the work process. Is that one of the reasons why there are so many world premieres coming up in the next season, or is it just that material from the ground floor came due? The ground floor is having its harvest. I think this is going to be an ongoing feature of the work that we do here. The ground floor is the single most important thing that we do as an organization to develop new work. And Madeline Oldham has done a a great job spearheading the program. But more than that, the ground floor has its apex every year with a one-month residency in June. And during that time, you know, anywhere between 19 and 20 playwrights come in various incarnations of development of, of their projects with different groups of people. Some come with just themselves, some come with the director, some come with a dramaturg, some come with actors. But the activity, that creative activity, has had a profound effect on everybody who works at Berkeley Rep and the audience and the culture that we're trying to establish here, which is one of support, nurturing artists, the celebration of creativity, and the rigorous, disciplined work that goes into the making of great work. I've noticed that a lot of companies now are doing more new play development. You know, a few years ago when I spoke with Loretta Greco over at The Magic, because they tend to go on the second or third pass through Mm -hmm. a play, she said it usually takes two, usually three passes to get a play perfect because you need three directors. On some level, are you giving up on that element of it, the finished product in terms of bringing in world premieres? Not that these plays aren't great. Not at all. Not at all. There's a process by which we will develop a play And then there's a separate process for which we will green light a play for a production. I mean, Loretta's right. I mean, it takes probably two years, two to three years, for any play to sort of reach this place where everybody goes, let's do this. So we haven't been any more lenient in terms of our scrutiny of when we think a play is ready to be done. It's just that we have a lot more investment and eyes on the project for a much longer period of time. Does it make it a little easier for you because you're not off gallivanting looking for plays? You know, I thought it would. (laughs) I thought it would, but it hasn't. I spend more time now because so many of our plays travel, because we send out so many plays and we partner with so many more people. It seems that every project has an attachment to another group of people, uh, another set of artists, another theater where we have to be in touch with them in a rigorous way, not just like, hey, how you doing? What do you got? It's more like, what's the process by which this play is going to get made? Yeah, I mean, my travel schedule is busier than it ever has been. 
I'm not entirely happy with that. It's 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 pretty exhausting. And um, if you've been on a plane recently, Richard, <laughs> you'll know that it's like the bus feels nicer. You'll be over at the public next March, right? For um, Latin history from morons. You're still directing it over there. Yeah, I am. Right? I am. And uh, we rehearsed it in New York, so he was there a lot in rehearsals. We have an ongoing conversation about it. He's coming out here to see it. We'll talk then, and then we're very excited to go there in the, in the, in the spring. John tells me that he changes the show every night, which kind of adds something well, to it. Well, <laughs> he does, but it's not like he like rewrites entire sections of the play. Right. I mean, like the idea that, that he's improvising the show every night is completely wrong. I mean, the, the, you know, 97% of the show is the same every night. However, he is a performer who absolutely, absolutely is in the moment. And he digests material by performing it. And so he will play around with the delivery of things so that his transitions feel more truthful and honest and grounded. He's a great actor. This guy's a great actor. And so he needs to feel a deep connection to the material. And it's, it's gotten stronger and stronger every night. What he said is that once it opens, he has the ability to know exactly where it's going exactly. and can make it switch. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's exciting because it's, you know, it's, it's the difference between, you know, so you know a piece of music, right? And so you're playing it. But when you are no longer worried about some of the passages or if things work, you get to live inside of it and express it in a deeper way, in a freer way. Well, Tony Tacconi, let's talk a little bit about the previous season it seemed to me that, for instance, the strongest play of the season, for me at least, mm-hmm. was Disgraced. Mm-hmm. Amelie was quite good, and I understand that they're still working to bring it to Broadway. This morning, I just read and listened to the new draft, which I think is really exciting. Um, they've worked really hard to strengthen Amelie's journey, understanding how she is not part of the world in a normal kind of way. And so the passage of the play, which starts the play, which is the young Amelie, you know, is more isolated, it's funnier, it's stranger. And I think that's good because it sets up her otherness when she gets to Paris. They've tried to make the musical score more, a little bit more varied because as beautiful as it was, it felt like it was a little bit similar in tone. You know, like any good creative team, they've really attacked the issues and, and they made it stronger. So we're going to go to the Amundsen Theater. I'm still attached to the show, actually, which is very unique. Usually I kind of like get a jacket on and say hi but you know for this one I'm actually attached to the show so you know which means I'm working on it still we're going to go to the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles in the winter and then after that it's going to go to New York now I'm trying to remember because it's been a long time I've seen a lot of plays since but I believe one of the parents dies by falling Amelie's mom takes her to the cathedral Notre Dame and as they are visiting the cathedral a Belgian tourist decides to kill himself at that moment and, send, and falls from the precipice of Notre Dame and kills Emily's mother. Right. So that has to be done in a comic way. <laughs> well, the problem with the comic way, I felt the tragedy didn't get nailed. You're absolutely but... right. Interestingly enough, that's what the team has worked on. Everybody felt that the darkness of what the young child had had to experience was not strong enough. And so her alienation from her dad, her dad's a strange guy, he's a distant father. Her mother is kind of, you know, an overwhelmed and inattentive mom. When they go to the cathedral at Notre Dame, they pray for having a son. When I say comic way, I mean, I'm not saying that it diminishes or should overwhelm the actual situation because everybody felt like that the whole first section of of the piece was too cute. It never really got at the at the trauma that young Amelie had to experience, which makes sense out of who Amelie becomes. So these are the things that we're grappling with. So you're right. We hire you as the dramaturg. We're all set. <laughs> um, some of the other shows, Pirates of Penzance, mm. fascinating talking to different people because some people absolutely loved it, particularly the kids. But the purists hated it. Boy, did they hate it. <laughs> Welcome to Berkeley Rap. <laughs> Uh, we love you all, um, but we know we're going to ask some of you to endure things that you might find challenging. I mean, look, I know when we do these things that they're going to create some challenges right. for people. I know that. I just I know that by what we program that there are always going to be, you know, some folks on every show who resist or 
don't respond to right. what we're trying to do. Our job, my, I feel like my job is to try to, one, express to people what our intentions are. Like, what are we trying to do? What are the artists trying to accomplish? So that at least if people are understanding and are in on it, you know, that we've given them some tools to actually respect and understand and appreciate, hopefully, ultimately, what the piece is trying to do. Having said that, after we've done that, there are just pieces that people have a harder time with, and for various reasons, as you said. I mean, Pirates of Penzance is environmental theater. You know, when you walk into the room, beach balls are being thrown around. Some of them hit you in the head. If that's not part of your (laughs) expectation or desires, you know, you know. Now, we try to give people advanced, you know, like I said, enough advanced information and and tools, if you will, to kind of overcome that. I'm not trying to upset people. I'm not trying to go like, I know it's going to really make you guys upset. I'm just, I'm going to try to actually, what I'm trying to do is expand people's appreciation for what they can embrace. And I think that's a big goal. And I I've understand that it comes with some lumps. Let me just say this. Every single show we do, every single show, there are people who like it and people who don't. People who respond in a positive way. Now, obviously, with our more popular shows, you can say a greater percentage of people were able to appreciate it and and respond to it. I find, though, that the great thing about subscriptions, for example, and the great thing about people who come here with an investment in, like, a season or, in a lot of cases, a lot of seasons, is they, they are willing to try to be open to a very wide spectrum of work. One of the tenets that I have about putting any season together is variety. I mean, it is one of the key things, both formally, aesthetically, you know, how we do a play, and content, what we're talking about, so that you're always a little bit surprised, perhaps. I mean, that would be, for me, a compliment, that people are surprised in a good way. They come in with some expectations, I don't want to see this thing, I don't want to see a play about Matthew Shepard being killed, or I don't want to see a play about you know, a political didactic thing, and they come out and they go, wow, that was interesting. I was swept up by something I didn't expect to get swept up by. So that's the goal. Disgrace, to me, was Uh almost easy in the sense that you had an award-winning play. Disgrace came with a pedigree. It was a celebrated play. I just, when I saw it, I thought, well, we should do this. Ayad's ability, he's the playwright, at Akhtar, his ability to galvanize, crystallize complex political situations into dramatic form is pretty spectacular. Invisible hand. Did you get over that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy can write. The guy can flat out write. He's got a play now called Junk, which is going to open at La Jolla, which I think is a spectacular play. It's about hedge funds. But it just rips through the audience like a I, I don't know. I, I'm just really excited for him as a writer, and, and I've got to meet him, and I think we're going to do something with him, f- you know, for sure. I mean, we, we really like each other, and I'm hopeful that we'll get him here. Aubergine, is that going anywhere? Aubergine opens in New York, not our version. We decided that we would let another theater in New York do it before we did it. She wanted it to happen there. I didn't want to stop that from happening, and she had a, also a, like a relationship with a player with Horizons that was strong, so it felt right. I was extremely proud of the production here. We have, have, have a lot of interest in the show. We may do a little tour of it next year. I don't mm-hmm. know. These are complicated things to actually concretize because schedules and time and money and all that stuff. But we've had significant interest in the play, and a number of people like on the West Coast saw it who really loved it. And that was ground floor, right? That was ground floor. Now, that thing came out of a 10-minute play. We hired these writers to write 10-minute plays about food. That was years ago, and... 17 writers wrote these little plays about food, which I was hopeful of doing a whole evening of. And she came to us and said, do you mind if I turn my plan to a full-length play? We're like, are you kidding? We've been trying to commission you for like 10 years. Yeah. So she wrote the full-length version, which we just loved. But honestly, Richard, I did not know how the audience was going to respond to Aubergine. You have a guy who's dying on stage for right. you know most of the play, and it's relentlessly quiet. It traffics in silence. It's formally somewhat challenging. You know, they have these monologues that people have and in the middle of what appears to be a lot of very quiet action. But I tell you what happened with that, man. I mean, from the first audience, the first preview, the audience was just present. 
the combination of Julia's absolutely graceful, benign spirit just pouring through that play and the issue of taking care of somebody who is sick is a very, very common situation. Well, there's also the element of that was Korean family, too. Yeah, so that was a little bit exotic because you have a, one of the characters doesn't speak English and the, it yeah. only speaks Korean and it, it dialect happens in, in subtitles. And that was a little bit of his... I also didn't know if that was going to work. We've never done a play with that many subtitles in it, ever. We've done some plays that have had some, but this was like it was a, two long scenes that people had to read the subtitles for. And I was like, okay... It all worked. But, you know, it's one of those things where, hey, man, the theater is so crazy that way. It is so crazy because you just, there's just so much of it where you just kind of go, we're going to find out, you know? And that one, it worked. Macbeth, everybody loved it and loved her in it. Frances McDormand and Conlith Hill, too. Is that going to be going anywhere with them? Or no, be- just- no, because their schedules don't allow it. And so it was a real coup that we were able to get Frances and Conlith here to do that because, I mean, I mean, Collins is on Game of Thrones, right. you know, for another three years, and and Fran is, like, busier than the president at this point. She'd make a better president, I think, than the people we have currently running. But anyway. So would you. Fran is a force of nature. She's amazing. She's an amazing person. I thought Conlith was superb. His ability to speak those words with a kind of just natural force and intelligence and ferocity. I was blown away by his performance in particular. I love Fran. I mean, Fran has wanted to play Lady Macbeth since eighth grade. Since eighth grade. Now, that will tell you more about Francis McDormand. Someone said to me at one point, you know, you sort of need to see it more than once because in that first act, if you just keep your eyes on her, you don't have to look at anyone else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. The two of those people were great to watch and the, the show you know is visually pretty spectacular and and um and that's a hard play i mean Macbeth is not an easy play I and mean, i do think that some people came without realizing they were seeing Macbeth. <laughs> they came to see francis mcdormand either not thinking about it or thinking they were going to see fargo too there's not a protagonist that you can root for in the play no. and conleth gave a very very empathetic performance but but still, I mean, that play at the end is just a, the barn door closes, you know, so there's that. But having said that, I think it was a very, very ambitious production, and when it worked, it was spectacular. Uh, the final two shows of the season struck me as, the, in my estimation, mm-hmm. the most problematic. Treasure Island, audience is divided into those with the nostalgia for the book mm-hmm. and those without, mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that by... Zimmerman stressing loyalty, fealty to the book, it seemed to me, since I had no love of the book particularly, Uh it seemed to me that the story didn't move me. See, I think this is an issue because it's funny. I don't think Treasure Island is a book that's going to move you, ever. Maybe not. But I think it's a very common experience. I think a lot of people want to be moved by a show. When a text doesn't go there, people will frequently make the assessment that either it didn't work or it wasn't successful in terms of reaching them. Now, I love Treasure Island, but having said that, it's like Macbeth. Macbeth is a play, like I said, there's no tragic hero in Macbeth. You know, Othello, kind of like the guy, (laughs) you know, King Lear, Problematic, but you still feel for him. Plays like Macbeth and Treasure Island, which happened back-to-back, which was interesting, don't set up much room for that sort of emotionally cathartic ending or movement in it. And so I felt like Mary's production, which I myself felt was actually excellent and one of her best plays, one of her best productions, I thought it was one of her best productions. The way she told the story was superb. I think that Treasure Island, you know, is a gnarly artistic experience. So there you go. Go back and read the book. I don't think you could feel, oh my God, I feel so great about Long John Silver or, or, you know, Jim is a kid who you like. I mean, you feel swept up by the adventure of it. It seemed to me that Jim's, the character of Jim was just doing stuff and I was going, well, okay, that's Robert Louis Stevenson, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I think that you, Mary would probably argue with you long and hard about her fealty to the book. 
working on it can't happen here. I sent her a copy of my draft because I wanted her advice. So, of course, being Mary Zimmerman, what does she do? She goes back and reads the book, which blew my mind, actually, that she would take the time to actually read the book. And so this is one of the great adapters in our field. Mary Zimmerman is one of the great adapters of literature in our field. And, and who better to go to than get, you know, right. for me to get advice about that. And we've had really interesting conversations about exactly this. At what point do you need to leave the book and create dramatic situation? At what point is narration your enemy, not your friend? And as it turns out, what works on the page doesn't work on stage. So what you're talking about is like, for you, it didn't take that last step. It didn't sort of dramatically sweep you up in its embrace. Now, maybe because I loved the book, I was predisposed exactly. you know, to want to wanna go there. Right. And it was enough for me. Whereas for you, it's like, yeah, well, not so much. <laughs> right. I understand that. And I, I have some shrinks that I can give you the name of. You can go see. <laughs> the thing about Mary Zimmerman is the productions are always going to be so amazing. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, you know, the, the esprit de corps that she develops with every show. I mean, honestly, you had some of the best actors in Chicago. I mean, the older guys in that show were off the charts. I mean, she's got Jim Pickering up there. and Steve, I mean, these guys are like monster actors. And they're in this ensemble supporting this kid who was really good by the way I mean he was really fun to watch a great kid too the one show that I have to say that when I talk to people no one seemed to appreciate uh -huh. was uh, for Peter Pan uh -huh. and it struck me that it wasn't the direction Les Waters did a great job and it got it certainly wasn't um, the acting uh -huh. but it seemed to me a play of ideas that didn't somehow make it over. Maybe for me it's because I went through that with my mom, uh -huh. and the last thing I wanted to do was sit and watch that scene, the opening scene again, and then I didn't find the people interesting. Uh -huh. I think to maybe not defend Sarah, but to articulate what she was going for, she's trying to do something that was extremely rare. She's trying to write a play without a lot of conflict. And that right there is pretty controversial. I feel that the people who didn't respond to that had a valid reason to, you know, to feel the way they did because you want conflict. You want to see the contradictions played out. It's called drama for a reason. She also right. did that the same thing without conflict and oldest boy, but that had something else going on, which was a mother's, right. the mother's pull. And I think one of the things going on for her was that this play is autobiographic. And so perhaps, and I'm just going to, put this out there, but perhaps the internal drama that she was going through, you know, which she thought would, I think, translate relatively easily to a lot of people, may not have happened. Having said that, the people who loved Peter Pan loved it a lot. Did you walk into that one, that opening night? I mean, you would look on your face of like, oh my God, whereas sometimes I could tell with you beforehand You've got three looks. You've got the oh my god look. You've got the keep this my fingers crossed. What he's saying. <laughs> this is terrifying. With the, Don't believe this man. <laughs> John Leguizamo, the big smile on your face, walking in before we started, and I just wonder. I don't know if these various looks are related to what I ate half an hour beforehand or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hilarious. What is terrifying to me about what you just said is that I, I sort of feel that way about Tom Selleck and Blue Bloods. He's got three looks, you know, and, <laughs> and, and none of them are particularly compelling to me. So uh, I don't know. But honestly, with opening nights now, I don't get nearly as nervous as I used to get at all. I mean, I feel like I've been around the block a, lot, a long time now. I'm more intrigued, you know, by what's going to happen. Also, opening nights are always a little odd for everybody everywhere. The energy is always a little bit uh, more anxiety-ridden and electric, but it's also heightened. It's also suppressed. It's a bizarre kind of thing. I don't recall feeling any more anxious or weird that night than, than anybody else, but, but I don't know. Let's go through the upcoming season now. First show, It Can Happen Here, you said before we went on the air that that was a last-minute, in a way, replacement. Right. What happened was we had the rights secured to a play that we thought we were going to do to open the season. In a series of very strange events, we lost the rights. 
And so we found ourselves in February without an opening play. That is late for us. Usually we would have known, you know, probably at least three or four months before that what we're going to do. So it put us a little bit back on our heels, but it also opened us, you know, like an opportunity. Now, obviously, the political climate in this country became increasingly difficult to ignore. It being an election year and with the fall holding the deadline, you know, for the presidential election. And obviously we were sitting around and Mr. Trump was beating his drums and at that point looking like a really, really long shot, clownish candidate. I mean, people were not taking him seriously at all. And and yet he had gained enough traction by that point that you could no longer completely write it off. You couldn't say, well, this is just never going to happen. I mean, but, what a, but nobody, nobody expected him to win the nomination at that point. In the course of that climate, we started exchanging ideas, trying to find a political play that would speak to what was going on in the country. And that would be ripe for election season. So long story short, we're exchanging titles back and forth. And Lisa Peterson writes to me, with It Can't Happen Here as one of the titles. And I had remembered dimly the title because I'd done my graduate thesis on the Federal Theater Project and American censorship. And I loved, you know, that period of American history and I loved that period of American theater history. I remembered the book dimly, you know. I mean, Lewis has been somebody who I've been a fan of for a while, but not actively reading in, in, like it sometimes. So we went back. We knew there was a play, so we found the play. A play was done by the Federal Theater Project. It opened in 21 cities simultaneously on the same night around the United States in 1936. This was the time when Huey Long was running for president of the United States, and he was watching with alarm. He was writing the novel from 34, 34 to, then 33 to 35. The novel was published in 35. So he's writing this as he's watching Huey Long ascend right, yeah. into his monarchy, you know, in Louisiana. And so he wrote the book as a response to Huey Long, essentially. Huey Long was assassinated three months before the novel was published. So his primary goal of stopping Huey Long, <laughs> you know, was taken away from him by somebody else uh, in a horrible way, obviously. But in either case, what Lewis was doing in that novel was he was not just writing about Huey Long. He was writing a novel depicting the American pathology that allows demagoguery to take hold. And he is a breathtaking thinker. Lewis has got a vision that is deep and penetrating and rigorous and imaginative. And, you know, he took what was happening at that time. There's a few similarities. Race riots in our major cities, yawning income gap between the rich and the poor, foreign wars creating terror, immigration issues that were causing hostility. I mean, they're on and on and on, and he lays them all out. In the novel. In the novel. And in the novel, he basically charts the fate of this guy named Doremus Jessup, who's an editor, who's a liberal editor of a, of a paper in Vermont, and who is a very, very well-read, self-assured, good guy. <laughs> who is jarred relentlessly out of his relative complacency as the oncoming tsunami of demagoguery hits his family, himself, his state, and his country. And the play itself, he then adapts from the novel, and this is what you began working on? No, no. Lewis and this guy named Mr. Moffat very, very quickly made a play version of this for the WPA, the Federal Theater Project. And that's the play that was performed. However, we read the play. The play is not good. The play is really, really not good. And that's why it hasn't been done a lot, as it turns out. There's a reason why plays don't get done. So at that point, because my excitement and, you know, thrill of having come up with the idea was diminished when we read the play. And then I was like, okay, now what? So we went back and read the novel and got really recharged and thought this is a really, really good book. I mean, and it's not so much, I mean, Lewis's great strength was not as a stylist, was not about character. His great strength was as, as a, a thinker. 
So his vast epic portrait of America is what's th thrilling about the book, and his ability to understand how political ideologies work and the systemic problems that America has, both in terms of its social systems and its belief in democracy, but without an enlightened citizenry at times, and when global events become terrifying and the population becomes subject to fear and ignorance, the conditions are ripe for this kind of thinking to sway popular opinion. And so his ability to grapple with on, on a big, big scale with these issues is, when you read it now, it's, it's shocking. That was in February, and how long did it take you to write it, and has it gone through a lot of... Yes. Obviously, when we made the decision to do it, which is a bit of a terrifying decision, because you're like, okay, we got six months. I knew that the only way it was going to really happen is if I took ownership over it. I mean, if I really invested it, you know, as an artist and as a, a producer. And, and, and the thing that actually I have to say that was the final push was the staff remained absolutely excited and committed to the project. I mean, we would throw out these other ideas and every time it can't happen here came up, people would just bolt it up right and go. And so it just felt like we got to do this. We got to try to find a way to do it. Also, the book has been referred to a lot in articles that are sure. trying to describe the American political landscape now. And so it's in the currency of popular thinking right now. It also probably means that your audience might be a little bit more forgiving because... Yeah, but you know what was interesting is that when we got into this, I said to everybody, I said, because I've worked on a lot of political plays, right. and you're going to get outstripped by current events. events. You're just going, it's just going to happen. So I said, like, look, we have to assume Trump's not going to get the nomination, that he's going to go away, and that our job is to make a great play. We have to make this a great play. Forget about Trump. Because if, if we're dependent on Trump being in the headlines every day, then we will be relying exactly on what you said. I don't want the audiences going, well, yeah, it's cool because it's about now. Because that's not going to last past, you know, act one. <laughs> You're getting people there for two hours, two and a half hours, and they have to be compelled to watch and they have got to be excited and interested in, on a number of levels. You know, not just, oh, this is sort of reminds me of now, but like um, this is a really dynamic and an important story that, that I want to be engaged with. But, of course, what's happened is the exact opposite. And I have to say, Richard, it is odd. It is odd waking up every day and reading the headlines and writing this play. It is odd because I feel like I'm literally in the book. I literally, every day I'm going, that can't be happening. <laughs> That's not going to happen. No, come on, come on. Every day I wake up and every day there's a, there's an incident in Nice, and every day there's an you know another shooting of school children. Every day, and every day there's a sort of you know like an immigration issue, and every, you know Black Lives Matter. It's just like the atmosphere, the acrimony, the electricity, the energy, the velocity of energy is daunting and thrilling and you know scary. And that's where your brain is right now because you're working on it. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right now, yeah. Next play is The Last Tiger in Haiti, another world premiere co-production of La Jolla Playhouse about kids in Haiti who then grow up. There's a tradition in Haiti called Crick Crack, which is how they tell stories. It's an ancient tribal method of storytelling, which is really amazing. And, and a storyteller will say Crick, and if the majority of people in the room say crack, then he's encouraged to tell a story. The story revolves around, though, post-Hurricane Haiti. Poverty does not begin to describe the lack of resources. So it's got a, a family of essentially children who are more or less indentured servants to a character called Mr. Who We Never See. And the first act describes how they survive by just telling stories. I mean, literally, stories are their food, basically. And that's really exciting and interesting. And then that ends with a sort of traumatic incident. And the second act, you just mind-blowingly, happens years later, like now, in which one of these characters is a successful memoir writer. One of the other characters comes back to her plush, beautiful apartment in Miami to challenge her version of the events. 
And what happens, of course, is this shocking revelations about who told what story and what's true and what's false. It's a really good play, and we're excited to have it. Uh, where did it come from? It came out of the ground floor. Oh, again? It started the ground floor, and then it went around to a couple of other places. And then, ironically, uh, I get a call from Chris Ashley, who's the artistic director of La Jolla, and says, hey, we want to do this play called Crick Crack. I'm like, really? <laughs> I know that play. And so we were like, yeah, we're going to do that. So it became a, a kind of a lucky But it's not called Crick Crack now. No, the title was changed. One of the titles of one of the stories is The Last Hot Tiger in Haiti. And then you're doing 946, The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips, which is based on a children's book about a cat from 2006 by the author of War Horse. And I understand that as this is airing, it's at the Globe in uh, London. Yeah. Emma Rice, who is our esteemed and dear colleague from England, she was one of the artistic directors for Nihai, you know, for many years, has just been appointed the new artistic director of the Globe Theatre in London. We had committed to this project when Emma was at Nihai. Emma has since gone to the Globe, but our commitment to the project, all of our commitment to the project has only increased. So Emma managed to get the production to go from Cornwall and the tour to the Globe in London, and then it, it comes here. Um, now, this is a production that we commissioned with them years ago. We were looking for a transcontinental story. We found one. It's a story about this young girl in England who has a cat, and she, her family lives in the same place on the British shore, the South British shore, where these GIs are training during World War II for the invasion of Normandy. And this 12-year-old English girl befriends these... American GIs, who were only a little older than she is. The nominal story is uh, she loses her cat when her family has to be displaced, and they look out for the cat. The larger story is fantastic, because it's told by the little girl who's, who's now a grandmother, who's describing to her granddaughter why grandma has left England to go to America and is to reunite with one of these GIs who she met, one of these black GIs who she met in the course of the story. So it's told with that frame. It's a beautiful story, and it's, it's, it's and Emma's storytelling ability is, like, off the charts. I mean, her imagination is so vivid and rambunctious, and her ability to sort of pick different artistic elements like, you know, music and dancing and singing and storytelling and drama and put them all in one big stew and make sense out of it is great. Puppetry too, right? Yes, yes. Um, why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a lot of puppetry, but there's, you know, the cat is, is a puppet who gets treated very well. The next one comes from Broadway, Hand to God. This is about a psychotic puppet. When you talk about shows that people will love or hate. Yeah. This is one of them. First of all, it's hilarious. Yeah. This thing is hilarious, and it's scabrous and funny and smart, but there will be people who... You know what? Here's, here's an interesting thing. Comedy is much more controversial than drama. Much more controversial. Because what people laugh at usually becomes a very, very overt, sometimes deep expression of their morality. When people are in attendance at a play where some people are laughing and some people are shocked that other people are laughing at something, it becomes a controversial event. We've had that happen a fair amount. That's just the way it is. And hand to God pulls no punches. I mean, the central character is a kid in Texas getting his religious studies in a kind of crazed, you know, after-school program who has a hand puppet who is Satan, who talks to him and us a lot. And the kid's persona is obviously split. His persona is of this very passive, sort of slightly terrified, benign, shy kid, and he gets to use this puppet to act out the exact opposite and wreck havoc, like apocalyptic havoc in the world. So I, I think it's sort of an amazing play, and uh, some people will love it. Roe by Lisa Loomer talks about the attorney and the woman, Norma, 
who was Roe and Roe v. Wade for years after the decision? The show is an epic story. What I mean by that is it covers a pretty wide span of years, which chronicles two principal characters and their stories. One is, as you said, Norma McCorvey, who was Roe and Roe v. Wade, and her attorney. And what happens, of course, is in the course of the story is that Norma goes to seek legal help. She finds it, and that's the story of both the trial and the successive years afterwards. The most obvious dramatic advantage that this story has, I'd say, is that Norma McCorby herself you know, has become a right-wing evangelical who is very, very outspoken against abortion. So right there you have the makings of just a fascinating character study. What Lisa's done really, really well is to try to put this series of oppositional stories between her lawyer and and her into, you know, a theatrical box that you have to argue with while you're watching with it. The really compelling part of the story is I mean, what her real goal is to lay out the issues for you and have you both side with the characters and argue with them in your head. And she's done a great job with that. It's a very compelling story. I mean, obviously, with, with the attacks on abortion right now and, and Planned Parenthood centers, you know, the, the law itself is under siege. It really is under attack, and it remains to be seen how long the law will stay in place. I've been involved a lot with the show in its development It's had a very, very successful run at Ashland so far this summer, and I think our audiences will be really engaged with it. Was that another ground floor? No. No, it was not a ground floor. I mean, interesting, though, that, you know, we have a lot of colleagues, you know, who are in close contact with who, as you say, you know, have their own new play programs. Ashland's got a terrific one called the American Revolutions Project that I was lucky enough to be part of as a writer with Ghostlight. I'm very close to Bill Roush and his staff up there, and I admire them a lot. So we're, we're in close contact with each other about what plays excite us and, and what plays we might share. Monsoon Wedding, world premiere, musical, directed by Mira Nair, who also directed the film. And lyrics are by Susan Birkenhead, who has been on Broadway <coughs> with Triumph of Love. It is a very, very exciting project. Mira is a spectacular artist with enormous life force, indefatigable, energetic, bursting with life. I don't know if you've seen the movie Monsoon Wedding. It's a great movie, and when Mira approached me about it, actually Margot Lyon, who's one of the producers in New York, approached me, and I was just immediately drawn to it. I mean, and so we've been working very hard on this project for a very long time. It's got a predominantly Indian creative team, it's got an all-Indian cast. The composer is Indian. And the thrill of this thing is it feels like a different culture showing up on our stage. And, you know, we've never done anything that was Indian before in a way that felt invested in it in such a, a fantastic way. So this is going to be exciting for us. Is it Bollywood? No. It's not? It's adamantly not Bollywood. Mira will say that to you in much more articulate ways that you know that I will. In fact, it was written as a reaction to the success of Bollywood, you know, and going, well, I don't want to do that. You know, it's more and more like the antithesis of that. It's trying to tell a very kind of complicated story which has some darkness to it in celebratory terms. You know, it's obviously it's about this arranged marriage, you know, and the complications of of arranged marriage in a time that feels like it can no longer bear that kind of thing. So it's the meaning of two different cultures, which is contained in the metaphor of a monsoon. It brings together lots of different types of characters from all stratas of Indian life. The music is absolutely friggin' breathtaking. I mean, it's just so dynamic. And it's original. What's great about it is it doesn't adhere to the sort of typical Broadway formulaic sounds Viscerally, it's a different experience, but hopefully it'll be it'll be really really thrilling. Are they hoping to eventually bring it to Broadway? Who's not? <laughs> well, you know, plays these days don't go to Broadway; they go off Broadway. Well, they go. I mean, well, I, you know what's shocking to me is that you know when I was growing up in this field, Broadway was the enemy. 
Broadway was like that was where you went to like you know sell your soul. Nowadays, you know, it's not true. I mean, and you can criticize that certainly. There's a kind of commercial um, interest, you know, in this culture that's so rapacious and dominates everything so strongly that you know it feels at times that you're being swept up by something you don't want to be swept up by. Having said that, there's no longer the alienation factor. If people can make a living. They can sustain themselves in a way by taking themselves to Broadway. Great. So there is the intention of trying to take the play to Broadway. Well, the other thing is Broadway has changed. It used to be a nice mix of new plays, revivals, and musicals, and it's turning into... Musical heaven. Musicals and plays with with Hollywood stars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that, you know, Broadway is not changed in that regard in terms of it's the bottom line is money. Right. You know, and can you sell it? What we try to do, I say this with some pride, is that we, we try to do things on our own terms. So if I can get a play like American Idiot, you know, to Broadway or a Brenda Bar or a Sarah Jones, you know, I feel like I'll have made a little bit of a of a contribution to the spectrum of work being done there. But what I don't want to be doing is capitulating to the formula of how to take a play to Broadway. Well, it seems to me that what's happened is the smaller theaters, uh, and there are a handful of them in New York, are now taking the brunt of the regional plays and putting them on in New York after they've passed through the region. There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, uh, we've had a lot more interest in our plays from theaters in New York. I mean, yeah, I think that people are much more studious in New York about what we're doing. It's funny because now when we announce what we're doing, I get phone calls. You know, I just get people going, what about that play? And, and, and sometimes before that, and people are now wanting to know what we're doing, like, in the ground floor. You know, so we try to be pretty protective of that because I don't want this thing to turn into a meat market. I, I really don't. I feel like there's a way to, to try to inculcate that. On the other hand, I want artists to have opportunity. So it, it is our job to, to try to facilitate that and try to create avenues whereby people can make a living. I noticed, for instance, something that hadn't happened before is shows from SF Playhouse that they developed are now going to New York. It's yeah, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of theaters in New York. <laughs> you know, I mean, people want content, so if you can get that to happen, fine. I mean, having said that, one of my goals is to try to really try to widen the spectrum of what those opportunities are and not be defined by New York. You know, if we can take our plays around to other parts of the country, if we can take our plays to Asia, if we can play, take our place to Europe, if we can take our place to South America, I'm more interested in that at this point than, than I am, you know, trying to be so New York-centric. The final show, Tony Tacconi, is an octoroon, which is apparently a riff on an 1859 melodrama. Dion Boucicault. That guy was the most popular writer in the 19th century, like in America. I mean, he was an amazing writer of melodrama. He wrote brilliant melodramas. What Brandon has done is he's taken one of these melodramas and just flipped it on its head. And it's an astonishing play, actually, because the, the theatricality of it and what he's trying to do and the statement that he makes about people of color and using that play as a template to kind of reveal what it is to be a person of color in the United States is fantastic. I mean, the guy's really, really smart. And it was a huge hit off Broadway, like in, like in New York last year. It was done twice at the Soho Rep. It's a great play. It takes all the trappings of the antebellum South and just blows them up. Just blows them up into some sort of theatrical facade. So you feel like you're at a kind of like like a hallucinogenic party where all the roles have been reversed. So it's fun. Yeah, it's weird. When I was looking it up on uh, on Google, right. not only did I come up with the the original title of the book, which was The Quadroon, then there's the octoroon. This is a parody of the octoroon. And then it also came up with the word kitsch, which I thought was just brilliant. Well, that's <laughs> why the play is called An Octoroon. Okay. Because it's Brandon's take. It's his twist of an old play and sort of remaking it into a modern play. You're not directing any of the plays this year. No. I mean, I'm directing John's play. And if Aubergine goes on tour, I'll direct that, obviously. I'm developing a number of plays as a director. People ask me all the time, well, why don't you direct more, you know, at Berkeley Rep? And honestly, there's so much curating that I'm doing. There's so much developmental work. Much more time of mine is spent um, in that arena. And we have to. If you're going to do this much new work, you cannot just throw it up there. 
you cannot just hope to have other people figure it out. I mean, my seminal role as a producer, you know, of the uh, you know of this work is is to curate it in in a number of different ways. I love being a director. I do love it, and I have every intention of doing it again <laughs> in the future. But some years, this is how the how, you know how the workflow falls out. Uh, one final question. So you've got the directing of John Leguizamo. You've got the curating, and you've got the writing of it can't happen here. Does this mean that you're not doing any directing outside of this place in the next year? Well, like I said, John's show's going to go to New York. And then, like I said, if, if Aubergine goes on, then I'll, I'll be doing that. Right now, I just want to make sure that my schedule allows for the development of the work here. If there are opportunities that come up that I find that I am too attracted to to ignore, then I'll consider it. But I am in a very fortunate situation now. I, I turned down a lot of work because I have to. I mean, it's more important to me and more important to Berkeley that, that I focus on the work here. One final question. How do you like the new Pete's Theater? <laughs> oh, it's a gorgeous... I mean, the sound in that place is astonishing. It really is different. I mean... I don't know if people can completely, concretely tell I can. when they're in there, but it's really a game changer. We, we have microphones for John's show. We have microphones on the floor. We have microphones in, in, you know, all over. The acuity, the, the ability to hear things in that space now with the kind of vibrancy and attention is astonishing. At my end, I have hearing aids and... John Shaw, I didn't even need. Yeah, you you actually are a person who's a good template because you've in the past suffered from not being able to hear very well. Right. So this is great. I mean, I, I think it's great. I think it's it also as a, as an artist, you know, what you want as an artist is more and more control because you are able to be more precise and more nuanced with what you're doing, and this space allows us to do that. Uh, next play is we don't have actually anything going on for two weeks in August. But we're in rehearsal beginning August 17th for It Can't Happen Here. So we're busy. It Can Happen Here opens September 23rd, and there's a full season afterward. For more information, you can go to their website, berkeleyrep.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.